Welcome to Big Blend Radio with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. Hey, everybody, welcome to Big Blend Radio's Parks and the Art Show that we do every first Friday with the National Parks Arts Foundation, and you know how much we love them. Uh, they create these amazing opportunities for artists, musicians, songwriters, filmmakers. I don't care what you do in the arts. This is for you. Uh, they have these opportunities where you can apply to be an artist in residence in a national park unit. Um, sometimes your lodging is outside, but you are working within a national park unit or sometimes a state park. Uh, so, for example, you could be in Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. You could go to Chaco Canyon out in northern New Mexico. Um, you name it. Uh, Dry Tortugas out in Florida. You could have your own private island on Loggerhead Key off grid. And you have to take a buddy with you because you can't be totally alone. And go and create for a month. And it is an amazing program. So check them out at nationalparksartsfoundation.org. But on today's show, we're super excited to welcome Stefan Franz. Um, you know, Stefan is the founder of IDC. And uh, that is, let me get, get it right, Independent Distributive Distribution Collective. I'm so used to just dealing with them, <laughs> working with them, I should say. Um, they are celebrating 20 years in music marketing, distribution, and event production in San Francisco, but they do work with artists around the country in regards to marketing and distribution. And if you go to the Bay Area, they do a lot of events, and um, a lot of them are in parks, including Golden Gate, which is part of our National Parks uh, Service as well. So I encourage you as a musician to go check out Independent Distro dot com that's d-i-s-t-r-o independent distro.com so welcome Stefan. how are you great lisa thank you so much for having me uh this is so amazing as uh you know somebody who's a park advocate as well as uh, a music guy it, it's just always great to be able to tell those two stories kind of in unison um it hasn't always been that for me but uh i'm just super excited to to be here with you and, and kind of talk about two really big passions you know music and the music industry and then just our our park system and and the parks that mm -hmm. we get to to share um like this lovely space that's behind me tell us about that lovely space the band shell because that's what i you know i'm i'm friends with you on facebook and i'm always like he's out there again are you there every day like what's going on <laughs> it, feels like, it feels like i'm out there every day so we're we're about four days a week of live free music three to four hours a day of programming um on this stage that you see this beautiful space um basically this stage has uh always stood as a people stage for the city and what's amazing about it you know it's been here for a hundred and almost 30 years uh, but in fact, uh, this building, you know, has never charged for shows. Part of the charter of the gift of this building to the city of San Francisco was in effect to say, you know, uh, we can't charge for shows here. And so it's a blessing and a curse to somebody, you know, who's promoting uh, events here because, of course, you know, if you can't char charge for tickets, you know, it becomes a challenge at certain times. Um, so that challenge was met in my mind. Uh, I met a guy about three years ago, Ben Davis, from a uh, mm. uh, nonprofit here in San Francisco called Illuminate the Arts. And uh, there had been some work done by the city's Recreation and Parks Department and Illuminate the Arts and another nonprofit, uh, the San Francisco Parks Alliance, to raise philanthropically some money to put in an in-place sound system and lighting system in this hundred and something year old venue. And, uh, you know, I just happened to be, I guess, in the right place at the right time. And it turns out, you know, they needed somebody to kind of run it, production manage it, program it. Uh, and that all kind of came uh, to being in the middle of 2021. But uh, COVID times, too. Yeah. Yeah. But I, my experience with parks, I mean, just to kind of give a, a little groundwork. And I know, you know, we'll talk about a lot of this. Um you know, basically my music experience goes back about 40 plus years. I'm 57. So I started working uh, in clubs uh, when I was not old enough to maybe be in those clubs. I started working at CBGB's in 82. No way. <laughs> that's, my, that's my, you know, kind of first 
Oh, you might know some of our band friends, the Cravens. Oh, not the Cravens. They were something else at that time. I have to go look up their name. You know, but anyway, we, we could spend like probably do a, a retro show on. You know, I know, we should, we should. What the New York City <laughs> club scene was like in those days, and you know, I was very blessed. I'll tell you again to see bands at a level, even as a seventeen or eighteen year old watching punk rock shows, watching the birth of you know hardcore at its you know grimiest. Um, but then going out in the street and hearing hip hop or hearing reggae for the first time, you know, it was uh, a time in New York City where kind of anything went. Mm. And uh, during the 80s, I worked at Danceteria, I worked at The World, uh, I worked at Limelight, uh, you know, all of those clubs. And uh, I was I was really lucky. My my first claim to fame is that I was the lighting guy on Jane's Addiction, Nothing Shocking. Oh, wow. When I tell rock people, they're just like, you know, talk about an iconic first, you know, tour. Um, as it turned out, that wasn't James's first tour. I had actually seen them and done lights for them at Limelight, like maybe three or four years before that. And uh, it just it just worked out. You know, uh, they were looking for a lighting guy. I was running lights at a big club and ended up doing their whole first tour, you know, across the country as they go from uh, kind of under the radar, let's call it, to three million sold. Wow. And so it was, you know, it was quite quite a tour. I tell people it, it was probably the best tour of the 80s watching them. You know, my, my GPS is called Jane after Jane uh, says. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I remember hearing that song for the first time and just being so brought into what they were doing. And then really, honestly, once you listen to the album, you know, that first album and even as they grew, um, just the depth of Perry's songwriting and the, and the uh, willingness and ability for him to take on what we thought like a pop song sounded like. Oh my God. And then the videos that backed it up. Remember the documentary? Holy cow. Yeah. Like that was not something you showed your mother. No, I have a couple, you know, <laughs> sadly, sadly and happily, I have a couple scenes in that, in that, I believe that. Um, no way. You know, you were up. banned in South Africa when, when we came out, it was one of the first things I watched. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, it, it was a time where you could create from, you know, any, anywhere your head took you. There were no, there was no barriers, I feel like. And I came off of that tour. It was not, um, the greatest end. You know, the band had started to break up a little bit. They were not really talking to each other. But more than that, I didn't really know my role as a technician. And so in the end, you know, I kind of like had too good a time on Jane's addiction. Nothing, nothing shocking is what I tell people, but. <laughs> Um, long story short, I came back to New York. I worked on Wall Street for a couple of years, got back into God. Uh, as a runner. I shouldn't make it sound glorious. From I, one rat race to the other. I was a runner on the floor of the commodities exchange. Like I, I definitely went from touring the world with a band that went from zero to three million sold and then came home and people were like, what do you, what did you just do? I'm like, yeah, I did lights for Jane's addiction. They're like, how are you here? How are you a runner on the floor of the commodities exchange? And I had a relative who, you know, I think we all make deals uh, to try to change our life. And I'm a big proponent, as I know you are, of sometimes you just have to jump, right? Sometimes you just have to say, yep, I, mm -hmm. whatever I was doing, that was great. And I have that memory, but now I have to focus on whatever else. And I thought Wall Street was that. And unfortunately, my cousin got indicted by the CFTC. And once he went away, I was like, yep, I'm out. I'm done. I don't, I don't need to be around this anymore. And went back to DJing and working in clubs. And I had DJed for a time at a couple of cool clubs, um, you know, in the mid 80s. But by the late 80s, I was serious about it. I started buying records and had a crate, and, you know, did all the things that DJs do. And in fact, went from working on Wall Street during the day to like run home, change my clothes, grab my crate, go DJ, mm -hmm. come home at two o'clock in the morning, you know, shower and be on on wall street at seven thirty or eight o'clock so you know that can that, you still do that today like i just want to like that's dude, our energies in those days yeah yeah wow. you know that's my my timeline for sure is like you know i i work 18 hours a day I think, yeah wow so uh wow. so long story short i go back to working in clubs and you know uh that was really something that i did extensively in new york city for a long time and I met uh, my first wife, Brandy, who was a dancer at a club called The Red Zone. And we ended up hanging out and spent a lot of time together and decided we were going to get married, uh, living in our little Avenue C and Third Street uh, studio. And, you know, we just had this dream. And 
I said, well, where do you want to go on your honeymoon? She said, Maui. And mm. I had been to Hawaii before, and I, I thought, this is great. You know, this is a great fresh start for our life. And so we booked our honeymoon to Maui, and as luck would have it, uh, I was DJing. I got into reggae probably a year or two before that, and right specifically dance hall reggae. So, you know, I, when, when I was working at this club red zone, there were people like Puffy, uh, Puff Daddy. I don't know what he wants to be called now. Um, who was doing his internship at Uptown Records and threw a party. No way. At that time. Yeah. And and house music like David Morales, Frankie Knuckles, rest in peace, like all this amazing music. And they're like, yeah, we're going to do a reggae night. And when I learned what it was, I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm open. You know, I like the clash. I like, uh, you know, Bob and Ziggy and third world and steel pulse. And uh, they were like, no, it's not that at all. It's, it's dance hall reggae. It's hard. It's Shaba. It's, uh, mm. Levy. it's Nicodemus, Cuddy ranks. I was like, okay. Uh, and that place was, I mean, to use the kids term, it was lit. Like it was a, 2000 person club that 4000 people tried to get into because Jamaican music at that time in New York City in the late 80s early 90s was like the thing. And so, you know, I had that experience of um listening and then emulating or trying to understand what they were saying. I think the patois um especially as we got into this dance hall culture um here we are in this club and we're singing along and I need to know what the words mean that we're singing along to. And it wasn't super important to me then in that moment. But when I moved to Hawaii and I started as a DJ there, okay, so yeah, let's, let's hit that. So I got married, <laughs> Randy and I got married. We honeymooned in Maui. There was a reggae night. I went to the guy who was running the club and I said, you have a reggae night. I'm a reggae DJ from New York. Um, what do you, what do you guys play in the, in the breaks? And he said, Oh, it's this kid, Marty Dredd, who's, you know, uh, again, now, uh, I met him when he was 19. He's now like, I don't know. I don't, don't want to say he's 50 yet, but you know, he's put out 17 albums or something since we started working together. Um, so Marty, you know, performs at this club and I end up winning my, myself a job. If I can come back to Hawaii, DJing the breaks of his party. Dude, right on. Right. So off the Lower East Side, it's nine degrees. Brandy and I sell everything and off we go to Maui. And, uh, you know, I, it was it was an amazing time. Again, playing this music for people in a place that was so open and so interested because they really loved Bob. They really loved did, did you learn the, going back to the, the verbiage? Because I grew up with this music. I grew up in, in South Africa and Kenya. So like that kind of music was always there. But in um also different artists. So Bob Marley was part of the world, but reggae was also part of African music, obviously, right? Yeah. And so, but it was like, um, it was a ghetto blaster on the shoulders, heavy, heavy stuff. Like, you know, you'd hear it on the streets and it was like, it's like if you go to Mexico, they'd blast it off the cars, you know? And I love it. I just, it's like the pulse of the people, right? And, yeah. you know, like Ponto Bantan's got to still have that big old voice, like, you know? And yeah. it's like, when I hear that, I'm like, everybody just like, dude, this is the thing. And and you then you bring in UB40, and I'm like, I can't. <laughs> no offense, I can't. You know, but I get it. Like, people need that. So it's kind of like, it's interesting, the history of reggae, when you go from, when you're talking about, like, dance hall music i i'm like i was in a different country at a, that time frame but it was like wherever it was on street corners it was an underground things going on underground clubs that we had going like it could be people's houses that were just opened up that were shut out you know like you had to have this the, there was like a speakeasy going yeah. on and when i grew up yeah, in a weird way um, so so you know, in, in my history in New York, I probably would say that I was not involved in that level of it because in New York at that time, I was working at the preeminent reggae. When they kicked off this party, the DJ, his name was Sting International, and he's notable because he produced Shaggy. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, he's a very notable producer. Uh-huh. And the guy who threw the party, David Levy, is Hot 97, which, again, was like, before its time in terms of people promoting this type of music. 
But, and, and again, I'll, I'll caution this story turns dark. You know, the reality is at that time, reggae music, dancehall music was very homophobic, misogynistic. Like it was not. That's really true. It wasn't your parents, you know, reggae music. It wasn't peace and love and, and, you know, positivity. It was definitely more like gunman lyrics. It was more. It was more going into what hip hop started, like rap in a way. In a way. You know, being somebody who came from New York and knowing that hip hop was on the streets with DJ Cool Herc, you know, when I I was much younger, of course, when that happened, but knowing that those seeds were planted and hip hop really came from, you know, rubbing two records together the way Herc was saying, hey, we take these breaks and, you know, you can rap over these breaks. Jamaicans, you know, that's been their style the whole time I've been in reggae. So, you know, again, that similarity drew me to dance hall, but it also made me weary because if I didn't understand it. And so, you know, I always tell the story of David Levy, me saying to him, listen, man, you know, I love this music. I want to get into it. I need to understand what they're saying. And he said, well, ask me, man, ask me. And I said, well, you know, there's this song by Shabba Ranks and he's saying something about a tra-la-load of, and he said, oh man, it's easy. Tra-la-load of gallop on a wharf and I'm going to pay the custom office something for clear them off. What? Miss <laughs> Say, you have a trailer load of gallop on a walk and I want to pay the custom office. <laughs> and then Lisa, it hit me. I heard what he was saying. And he's like, the wharf, man, the wharf. I was mm. like, he's a trailer load of girls on the wharf and he wants to pay a custom officer. Something. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it all came to me. And from that day on, I was dangerous. Why? Because I could understand Pathlock. Good, good. It didn't matter who we were. It didn't matter where we were. I could understand the language and now and then what you're saying. And so again, moving to Maui and then making the choice to understand the language and understand that I'm not going to propagate. We all know what consciousness is. It's a very easy. Right, right. The opposite of consciousness to me is slackness and slackness is very easy to propagate if you don't make a stand and stop. And so for me, when I moved to Maui, it was like, no, I'm not going to play slackness. I'm only going to play consciousness. Well, that's integrity. That's integrity to your belief system. People would say that it's censorship, but I would argue I can put in my time where I want. So No, that's your integrity, your integrity to your belief system. I mean, I smashed those Slack records, Lisa. I smashed them. I was Mm -hmm. like, I'm not playing these. I'm not selling them at Amoeba. I'm not, you know, I'm I'm smashing Mm -hmm. them because I don't want more people to play them. And in the end, again, people play what they want to play. They just know around me, I'm not going to really stand for that. Well, it, it's kind of like right now, though, we have banned books in certain states where they're even banning Anne Frank. So, like, that's different. Right. That's again, wrong. That's you, wrong. You do what you want to do. You know what I mean? I'm just not going to be the guy that, that mm-hmm. underwrites it. I'm going to tell you if you have a message and you need a home or you want Negative. To, yeah. Right. I'm willing to be your support system. There are plenty of people if you want to be. Well, well, this, this is why you, you, you know, you're on the show today. Number one, you're celebrating 20 years with IDC, but you know, like you and Billy, I got to give Billy James a shout out over at Glass Onion. And, sure. uh, you know, Billy's, Billy's awesome. Been working with him for years and that's how I connected with you guys. And every time I see IDC, you know, musician, I go, I already know. I don't think we've turned down anybody from IDC because Everyone has some kind of, uh, it's, it's a positive message. Even if there's like some fire, like, okay, look at Anna Carney, right? Carney, like last time she was on our show, hey, she was just on our front cover of Big Weekly Blend, right? And we're looking at this going, here she is full of color and like smiles and I want to do climate change. And she gets on, she's like fiery about it. Like, you know, she's got like, move on with it. Don't be slackers, people like the slacker, right? But she's got fire, but she's not putting down. She's motivating, but ha- and has a purpose. You know, we've we've taught people like Donovan planning and planning the Leafs. I still love that name, right? Uh, ben Lang has been on. You know, all I am just you guys have. Oh, pardon the the interruption. Now that is like an amalgamation of of coolness. Like I love the ska, the reggae, the just rockabilly kind of crazy fun. I want to go to one of their shows big time because they look like fun. They're they're fun. They're fun. And really, in the end, you know, IDC is trying to be a home to people who don't necessarily, you know, I mean, we'll we'll take that on as its own topic, I think, that IDC in itself 
didn't exist prior to, you know, the late 90s or early 2000s because there was really only independence and major labels. There wasn't really something that modeled itself the way now, you know, I like to look at us as a big company that represents thousands of artists, but the reality is we started with eight labels in, in 30 stores. It was mm. very humble. Um, so, so yeah, let's, let's kind of fast forward. I, I, um, I lived in Hawaii for two years, uh, DJed a lot. Oh, Maui must be sad for you right now too. Oh, seeing... Heartbreak. I, I don't even, you know, I don't know that I'm there yet in terms of like seeing it and, and really processing it. Um, those mm-hmm. were my streets for those two years. I DJed up and down that place. I, I had oh, wow. hundred meals, you know, a year right there. Um, and it's sad mostly out of the idea that, you know, it will never be the same. It was, it was a one of a kind place. And, you know, I think unfortunately we all know whether that's, uh, you know, Pompeii, if you, if you think about it or you think about, um, you know, places like I, I was reading that colonial Williamsburg was only 90 build, buildings left when it was all said and done. Here, you know, you have a place that's utterly destroyed and yet, the banyan tree they're seeing some some life um you know there were a couple of places that were stone rather than uh, uh wood facades and they made it and so there's always some you know i we went through a lot of fires we went through right i know you guys lot. we've fire. been through a lot of them but i remember it was part way through the fire series that we went through and um we lived up in julian in the mountains and we used to run hoot night so <laughs> we used to run like a Huda nanny, literally in the mountains. And um, anyway, I, I'd go up and down because, you know, the, back in the print days of the magazine, and you've been in the same era of evolution, you know, of m- music changing. Now we have Spotify. We didn't have any of that stuff. You could be independent, but you were like Zappa at home going, hey, this is a cottage industry, you know, and it still is. But um, anyway, you know, I'd go up and down distributing magazines, you know, throughout the Southwest and stuff and do my sales and all that. But I'd go down Banner Grade, which goes from the mountains in San Diego, Julian, down into the Enzabrego Desert State Park. And when you come back up the mountain grade, there would be this wisteria growing. And in the spring, this thing would flower. And I'm like, you don't belong here. That's some, somehow someone you got there. A bird gave it, you know, because wisteria did grow up in the mountains. And we'd have wild lilac, California lilac, all of that. And Banner Grade had burned at this point. And all these plants, a few years later, came that haven't, weren't, you know, haven't bloomed for 20, 30 years. And they needed that fire to happen. But I remember it was the year after the fire. Everyone's still sad and we're going through all kinds of weird copycat wildfires, all this drama. And they came up the grade. Lo and behold, that wisteria was back and blooming in this dark scape and i went holy crap you're a strong son of a (laughs) yeah Yeah. i mean listen my heart was so happy so you can't it it isn't there is no all or nothing it doesn't exist that way when you go back through something like this it's a circle i mean the reality for all of us is and you can call it the phoenix analogy or you can just call it that life comes in cycles and sometimes those cycles are Mm -hmm. very active let's say when you're young and you Mm -hmm. know a virtuoso of a violin or a chess player their cycle has to be super high when they're young whereas Mm -hmm. somebody like me i don't know that i knew my path when i was 17 i knew that running lights in a club was cool but it wasn't what my destiny was my destiny came much later and i don't know that i've even reached it yet but i think the reality is all of it relates to the cycle it's all a Mm. cycle what your life is um, you know, to be really frank with you, and certainly, again, we could go on a deep dive around this. Uh, my mother, who is a huge influence in my life, I tell people I'm a mama's boy. I, I, you can see that in like how I live my life when you, when you know me. But the reality is my mom, you know, took care of me, uh, when I was living, you know, working at CB's. I was homeless, you know, at times. Mm-hmm. And she took me in when I was not the greatest character in the world and has watched me become you know, a mensch have become a great, a great son. And, uh, you know, now she has dementia and she's in assisted living and understanding the role of a, of an adult child who has to take care of their parent in this way. And I know so many people now who have those parents mm. in their 
homes after the pandemic, you know, just trying to take care of them to give them any sort of joy and, and life. And so again, I just look at my mom who was highly educated, taught in the New York City public school system for 40 plus years, and now doesn't really know the year. It's sad. It's hard. But, That's but really it, hard. It, it is her even saying like, hey, this is the, she understands that this is the back half or the, you know, whatever that mm-hmm. looks like. Um, knowing full well that, you know, she, she lived her life, that her life was mm. a certain way and she was happy with it, what it was. And I feel like that as well. I feel like I'm very fulfilled and, and I know that we don't have a huge amount of time today. So I, I do hope that like the, a few of these discussions will spark a, a part two of this. Um, oh, absolutely. You, you're always welcome on a show. I, I do want to get into the music. I, but this is the thing. It's like, I, I, and I like that we're having these discussions because um, we deal with so many musicians, not just, you know, you, you obviously coming on shows and things like that, but we've got friends, we've been in the industry too, and with our own band drama, which has been like, that should be its own book, and we don't need to get into yeah. crazy stories of people getting arrested, and we didn't, Nancy and I didn't get arrested, but it was close. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, there's all kinds of stories, but there is a huge frustration level for the creative arts community, and it's not just in music, it's in books, it's in artists, it's in everything because, okay, so the writer's strike is now over-ish. I say ish because I give an ish to it because who knows what's going to happen, right? We've got AI looming over music. We've got what's happened with streaming, which is a good, bad, and the ugly, right? Um, Bandcamp just got sold, we've, which was like the one place, right? Then at during COVID, it was hard and yet good because musicians learn how to stream and do videos and live performances, which are not the same as being in public, as you know, and you run live events. Um, so it's been really difficult. And a lot of musicians do have to have job A, B, B to be able to do C, which also gives them more creative control to be able to do what they want. And some just go, no, I'm just going for it 100%. Right. So there's a lot of um, angst of why do I bother almost like a hopelessness, but I still need to do it because of my creative being. My soul is this, right? And so I love the conversation about who you are because you run IDC um, and I want people to understand that basically the music industry, you do have your shysters and you have your non-shysters and you have ones with consciousness and, and with uh, who care and care about the art, the craft, the audience, the, the, that there is profitability as much as it can be. Um, I think that's very important right now because basically we, you look in the history books of, of musicians, they've been screwed all the way through the eighties and into the nineties and still happening. Right. Yep. So yeah. it's an important thing. And when you think about managers, people get scared, you know, yeah. all of that kind of stuff. I mean, I think I can speak to that quickly in saying, like, the music industry is like any other business. The reality is the people who work hard and have a focus and have drive, I I mean, I can give you many negative examples of people who say, I don't know why I haven't made it. You know, why am I not super successful? Well, where do you, let's start with where do you want to be? Do you want to be touring nationally? Sure. Okay. So if you want to be touring nationally, you have to create demand in other places other than your home or you're actually never going to actually generate enough momentum. But that all starts for me with being prepared for what the industry is looking for. And again, Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to get too deep into it, but how do you compete with somebody who spends time crafting a public, uh, 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 press release? You know, making sure their images are good, making sure that their product, their music, streaming, downloading albums are for sale everywhere. Um, how do you compete as somebody who just kind of says, well, I put it up on SoundCloud and I, I thought I, I put it up on Spotify or iTunes and no one. Oh, remember they had on TV where the, I think it was UPS that did it. I don't know. I don't want to, or maybe it was a postal service. So sorry, do not want to call anyone out. Back in the day when shopping carts first started happening and they said, Oh, you put it up and then you got a million orders and what are you going to do? And I'm like, God, why did you have to do that? That doesn't exist. I don't care what you're selling. You I know? think that's part of the record, the music industry is that the stardom, you know, let's, let's start with the fact that like most people who dream this and that could be millions and millions of people, 
aren't actually going to be the thing that the industry is looking for. And that's okay. You know, I tell a lot of people who come to me and they're like, I want to be a pop star. It's like, yeah, you're 38 and, you know, like you have great music, but like show me somebody else that's like you. That That's probably a really good question for our, for your listeners. Can you ally with somebody who's like you that you hear, let's say, on the radio? Right. If you're the next Olivia Rodrigo, that's great, but it doesn't really matter because there's already Olivia Rodrigo. So what are you bringing that's unique? That's a big part of this. What are you doing that's not like everyone else that makes you special or different? Right. We see that with Adele or Lizzo, with different artists of today that have kind of stood out because, you know, they bring something special, not just great songwriting and commitment. Um, the other piece that I'll speak to is knowing the actual things from a business perspective that are expected like copywriting right protecting your words we hear in the strike today you know today that they're concerned about copyrights and control well i could tell you that 80 percent of artists i come across don't even really understand the rights and we could do a whole show on like the business of oh let's do that we'll do that um I, i'll definitely come back to you maybe in the winter when you know things are quieter yeah. we can spend an hour on that topic but then, you know, to ask them, oh, do you have ASCAP or BMI? You know, they want to get songs in, in movies and, and TV, and they don't understand that the mechanism to pay them is ASCAP or BMI, publishing. And so, you know, again, it's these elements that concern me because people say, oh, there's no, there's no money in the industry. I ask them, you know, and again, I'll make this a very parksy, you know, statement. Um, have you ever milked a cow? Uh, it's not easy to milk a cow, right? It looks easy. It looks like you just pull the things and you, boom, you milked it. But that's not how it works. You actually have to do it a few times before you become good at it. And so I really speak to the idea that, like, you have to apply yourself. And we talked about this a little, you know, when it was you and I before we started the recording. Mm -hmm. it, it comes down to how much, if you can give 100%, it's going to be great. If you continue to give 80 or 30 or 50%, and hope that you're going to reach a level of momentum, that's really challenging for anybody in any business, not just in the music industry. So yeah. I think, it, you know, it really comes down to like getting, getting your act together, figuring out what the element is like that, that you're good at writing songs. Great. Sit down and write some songs. We also talked about the ability to shut out all the noise of the world. That's such a huge thing to me because again, you think about these great songwriters were able to kind of isolate themselves enough to be able to tell this great story and now what happens i see with a lot of people at least you know my age group is that we're so distracted by everything that's going that it's hard to bring ourselves to harmony with the work that we're doing mm. so you know i think that's those elements would really be the what, thing what, well you talk about that shutout thing i think that's where and i got to bring in the national parks arts foundation with that of having like a retreat like that I know it's a residency, but being able to be in a park for a month where all you do is create and you're allowed to change your point of view. Like, hey, I want, when you apply, you have to go, oh, I want to do this, 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 this. They let you change it. As soon as you get there, you know your whole thing's going to change because something else is going to stimulate you. And they open it up that, oh, you want to learn how to do a different kind of instrument while you're there? Do it. You want to learn a different writing thing? Do it. Those kind of, like, I look at, I know it's a, residency but i almost look at it like a personal creative retreat for a musician or a writer i mean i'll just tell you and again back to that phoenix mindset of like changing up your reality i lived in maui i had a great time people were like oh you must go to the beach all the time go to the beach all the time i'm working all the time to be able to pay the rent to live here <laughs> yeah yeah right um, but then i moved to san francisco yet another really expensive oh city. yeah yeah really. and, just you know, keep it cheap I right as a dj and basically brought my records. And when I had to start buying records to be, you know, competitive as a DJ, I was like, how do I pay my rent and buy records at the same time? And the reality was, you know, I was ready to kind of go from being a DJ to being a label and, and eventually mm. being an industry person. And I started positive sound, massive recordings when I moved to San Francisco, um, put out seven, seven inches my first year thinking, hey, you know, I got I got room for plaques everywhere. And none of that happened. Um, I worked with some really wonderful <laughs> people in those early days, uh, like Ross Michael and the Sons of Negus, uh, you know, these great, like, 
uh, amazing old time Nicodemus. You know, I produced his, his what turned out to be his final album. But it was reconnecting with a New Yorker, a guy named Rocker T, who was in a band called Skidanks back in the late 80s, um, who I ended up making a bunch of records with and really helping my label to grow. Uh, but, you know, again, working with Barrington Levy, I produced some stuff with Shinehead, put him out on the road, like really people that were important to the reggae world at that time, I was able to kind of communicate. And then, you know, my second uh, claim to fame happens, which is I become Mixmaster Mike's tour manager uh, in around 1997, 98, just as he becomes the DJ for Beastie Boys. Mm. So I toured with him, you know, independently. That's wild. <laughs> that could be a whole nother story, too. Um, I got to do a couple years on, you know, Beastie's Hello Nasty world tour, bunch of Tibetan Freedom concerts. Uh, See, but that's a difference. Like they really did do a bunch in regards to, you know, peace and positivity. Oh and, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I got to work with social them. justice. You know, in that era of like the Tibetan Freedom Concerts, Milarepa, you know, with them really being interested in, and honestly, you know, uh, to circle back, there's some great guys. They actually are some really good people, and and really, I have to call out Adam Yao, rest in peace. Mm. Today. Yeah, would always talk about Joseph Campbell and following your bliss and like, yeah. And so a lot of the things that I did later on came at the behest of them just going, you know what, bro, do what you do. You worry about everything else later. Do you do you. And mm -hmm. uh, I think about Yauk being at the top of his game, being this amazing rapper and, and taking nothing away from, you know, Mike D's musicianship or Adam Harvitz, you know, ad rock. No. But Yauk says, I want to be oh. a director makes these amazing videos, and then eventually starts a, a film production company, Oscilloscope, which has a, I think he's, before he passes, uh, he wins an Academy Award, or the studio wins an Academy Award for Exit Through the Gift Shop, the Banksy documentary. And I mean, talk about a guy who pivots from, you know, a rapper. In you're allowed to. You're allowed to. You're supposed to. That You're supposed to. And so that's really, to circle us back to where this conversation started, you know, San Francisco gave me the opportunity to start fresh. And here I am 25 years later. IDC started with eight labels and 30 stores with my peoples. These were all my friends and fams that needed help getting their records out. Now we do marketing. We do PR. We do social media. Social media. It's, it's, now you guys always like we do an interview and it's like I, I'm like, they've already got this going. Like, how did you do this that fast? Boom, boom, bam. I mean, it's like. But it's, and it's really nice, I think, for, I mean, cause we're independent as hell. Like we're, we're holding on to as much. And every day, like a podcast, like Stitcher's gone. I'm like, well, screw you. <laughs> all these up and downs go and, and like it's trying to explain. And then all they want to do is put ads on stuff. You know, all this stuff happens yeah. in our world, just like the musicians. And it's like, it is about everybody working together. And you don't want someone coming on spouting negative stuff because it's like, uh, you know, we have enough of that. Turn on the news. We don't need, we've got enough politics to, to feed the negativity realm of the world. You know, we don't, we don't yeah. need more, but music is the healing, you know, other than a good glass of wine, you know, it, it music is it. I would say that. And, and, you know, the reality for me is it's family. I, I have a very small family. I'm, I, I, I was married to this person, Brandy, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, we got divorced in the mid-2000s. But I've been with somebody for about 20 years, Melissa, uh, who saw the virtue of me writing a business plan, you know, in this very room that I'm talking to you in. Uh, and I've never written a business plan before. And I wrote a 40-something pager and handed it to her. And uh, she she read it. She took time. She she was, you know, uh, willing to to give me feedback. And she just said, you know, uh, I said, was it good? And she said, don't show this to anybody. And I said, does it suck? And she said, no, I'll fund it. And so I have to really come back to the idea that somebody seeing that value and that vision in what you're doing mm -hmm. now, 19 years later, we've been together for 20 years. IDC is, is 20 years old. You know, this was a joint vision, right? It was not just one person. You talked about Ben Lang. IDC would not be what it is without Ben Lang's contribution. He, behind the scenes, 
helps me run this company that looks on the surface like it's thousands or hundreds of people. And yeah, he's a smarty pants. I could tell when he was on the show and he's got, he, I love his America. Is He's got a deep voice, man. Yeah. Dang. He's a, he's a very good singer songwriter, but he also is a really good business guy. And, yeah. and, and you never know it to meet him when you first meet him because he is a really just casual average cat. But that guy's crushing spreadsheets and, you know, has helped me take IDC oh, God. being cottage to being real. Yeah. So I did want to touch on one last thing, uh, cause I know we, again, we don't have the huge amount of time, but I'm hoping we'll do a part two. Um, all of this that we're talking about here is about following your bliss. It is all about you as in, in you know, uh, beings, individuals taking accountability for yourself. I always quote, uh, the Blastmaster, KRS one, who said, you have to get yourself up. You have to get yourself together. You have to stop worrying about all these other people. So I want to touch on the fact that the music industry is great and it's wide and there's lots of things you can do, but the skill set that you get from doing sound or doing lights or learning video, or like you talked about zoom, you know, being a master of being able to broadcast yourself has great value in the event production world. And so as much as you've heard from me today, as like a music industry guy, and I've written a ton of songs, I should say I have 350 uh, compositions registered with ASCAP. I've had about 70 uh, uh, TV placements. See, and, and so, so basically he's not letting people take his rights. Okay. We're going to do, right. I've got, I, we're going to do a show on that for sure, because I know that, listen, do not mail yourself a letter. No. With your, no, don't no, do it. No, we'll have that. We'll have that show. We'll have that conversation. <laughs> we will. I want you, you know, I want, I want your listeners to really know, you know, believe in yourself, believe in the future. There is a future for you. Uh, relevancy is built on, you know, doing what you love mm-hmm. and finding the thing that really harmonizes and, and moves you forward every day. Um, for me, this has become booking live shows. I book, uh, close to. Yeah. We need to talk about San Francisco because, um, that's, I, I want to just interject there because San Francisco, I know friends who actually music friends who moved away because it got too thick. And then I don't know what happened, but now like I'm going, no, Stefan's there doing stuff. Come on. So shows a year, I think Lisa. (laughs) 500 shows you're producing and they're mostly in parks. They're almost all exclusively outdoors in parks, Golden Gate Park, uh, Union Square in the middle of downtown San Francisco. No way. A dozen shows there. Uh, Jerry Garcia Amphitheater um, about to launch this huge, uh, program in india basin park which is a brand new park so yeah uh for many years i served on the city's park recreation open space advisory committee which is civilian oversight of rec park and uh, it gave me a, a great relationship with the department uh as i had mentioned you know this uh gentleman his name is ben davis who's from illuminate the arts these mm-hmm. two entities rec park and illuminate have really steered a lot of all of the works that i'm doing now and in effect have really just, you know, kind of like opened the door. And I think San Francisco has always been a music town, but um, these two entities, along with a couple other people we're, we're partnered with, we, we all see music as the healing. We all see music as the way for us all to come together. And San Francisco has just always been home to. And to outdoors. The- There's something, I mean, as a musician and a singer, yep. like, okay, I'm one of those who would like to not wear shoes. I want to be as completely free and as, possible uh, in performance you go get you know them. you know and it's like being outdoors there's something our band used to uh rehearse in a little gazebo in a historic village park in oceanside which actually got them people to come in and we were rehearsing and so i had to teach the band members not to swear and like st- you know whatever you, you see where i am like we saw so that there's a museum on one so side. So is that the gold? That's in Golden Gate. That picture. That that's is the dead in the center of Golden the Gate. The Music in the music. But, okay, so the Banshell in Oceanside, where we were, the Banshell, we performed there. We had like three thousand people, and it was like, wow, this was cool. And I think it was a free gig. And then, um, our it was it. We were supposed to. Then somebody wanted us. Somebody wanted us to open for the Everly Brothers, but we were a seven-piece band with congas and all of it. And then they were like. A little too loud for the Everly Brothers for this start. So that didn't happen, but we could, you know, the band shell, they wanted to tear it down 
And as musicians, I mean, half of the entire show, every song I was like, you're tearing down history. And every, every song I was like, every person who's performed there in history. And it was so important that live music was there to awaken the people that were listening to the music. You can enjoy this music, but it's going to go away for timeshare to be in there and take away a public beach at the same time. So this was the important part of, um, when we talk about parks and utilizing the parks. So like the Banshell, has that Banshell ever been in threat in San Francisco or, and, or no, do you it's, think it's, it's been oh. in repair. It had about 30 years, but, um, you know, some storyline is, uh, John Philip Sousa played, you know, open this venue. Uh, Caruso played here in Not Six. Pavarotti played here, uh, in the 50s, wow. 60s. Uh, I have heard stories of like, you know, Janice playing acoustic on the front by her, you know, by her lonesome. Nobody knew who she was. A year later, she was on the cover of Rolling Stone. Uh, uh, Jimmy as a sideman for the Isley brothers. Jerry's second to last gig. Uh, Carlos, uh, Journey. Jefferson Airplane. I could go. I mean, we could. We could do. But that. Of- yeah, it's a, but the fact it's being utilized. And and it was not for about thirty years until this guy Ben Davis from Illuminate. Saw oh, so it. that's when it was under disrepair. And it- yeah. Although I do have to give props, the Golden Gate Park Band has played in this space for like a hundred and something years. What? Uh, so they they have kept the legacy alive on Sundays during their season, but generally, you know. For a lot of years, there was just no other real programming unless you went and booked a show and you spent the money to do, quote, a free show. Um, now it's like three, four days a week. Uh, you know, you just see a mix of locals and tourists and kids. Yeah, I think that's really great for tourists to know, too, So, yeah. which is great for the musicians. So, I mean, you know, San Francisco is one of the most famous cities in the world. So oh. someone comes to a free show. You know, and, you know, especially because I'm sorry, but San Francisco ain't that cheap as a traveler. So you want to have a free show somewhere, right? (laughs) So you go there, but then you're going to take that music home with you. You know, so that's a beauty of that. I mean, it's such a joyful place to stand out there and feel like, you know, there's so many people that have played here. There's been so much history in this particular space. And yet San Francisco as a whole, whether that be uh, Union Square, which has had, you know, lots of very famous performances, um, Embarcadero right down at the waterfront. Oh, yeah. Uh, U2, Achtung Baby, right, concert shot there in 89. Uh, or Jerry Garcia Amphitheater, which, you know, is home to Jerry Day here and thousands of people. And uh, again, just knowing that, like, music has been central to what San Francisco is. Mm. And I'll close this interview by saying, you know, San Francisco is a great, I, I feel like I'm a great brand advocate for my city, but I'll also say, you know, we spent a lot of years looking back. And I think that what I will tell people, especially people who haven't visited here in a while, that doom loop and all of what you hear, that's the news. That is not what's going on here. Yes, there are car thefts. There are break-ins. There are these, you know. Well, that's every city. It's every city. The reality is San Francisco has become uh, you know, a renaissance. There is more music here than you could believe. You walk down the streets. It, it feels like New Orleans. It feels like, you know, uh, Austin. It feels like a music town. And we know from our history, if that's the case, if we set that stage, that in the future, there are going to be some acts that you see and hear. That you so it's kind of like a revolution going back to what it was, like that history of it in the 70s. Because, you know, as a, as a, teenager coming back to the states you know i'm american but grew up in africa and england yeah. you know i wanted i went the first time we went to san francisco i was like i want to see janice joplin and i know she's dead but i still wanted to see i still had this rolling stone crazy you know childhood memory thing of like i want this i want to see jimmy i want to you know go to hate ashbury and yeah i was there but i wanted exactly what you're talking about you kind of wanted to go to like when you go to New Orleans, you want to experience what you know all the and beyond French uh, Bourbon Street. Uh, you know what I mean, the French Quarter. You want to go beyond that too. By the way, you have to look behind the scenes at all of it. And the reality for me is like it's a mix. San Francisco has always been a mix of tourists. It's and- awesome, and all the neighborhoods. Yeah, the awesome. neighborhoods. Oh my god, such a neighborhood city. You know that's why. Uh, you know I love New York. It's my home. It's it's the place that birthed me into this world. But I would still call San Francisco home now because the neighborhoods, the feeling of like seeing people that I've seen for 20 years. Hey, what's up? You know, it feels like home. 
So Mark Duda with the uh, Bodega Flowers. Uh, that I love that album, by the That's way. A great album. He's a great artist, isn't he? He, I mean, he. That was a cool conversation with him. He, his interview and his. He really brought New York City to life to me through that album, and I've never been there yet. That's what attracted him to me as an artist was like he was speaking what my you know my history on those streets. Yeah. And and it's a joy to listen to everybody. I mean, Anna Carney. You, I'll go back to her. Oh, Anna, oh, I love her. Somebody who really speaks to you know who who what my ethos is. We've written songs together. I you know have performed oh. with her many years. So it's amazing to uh, think about where she is now and how. So, what do you do as a performer? Like, are you playing an instrument? Are you singing? I, I, what I do you vocalize. Do? I vocalize on okay. some things. I uh, I play pretty much everything. I, I wouldn't play drums, but I can play bass. I play guitar. I can play keyboards. Um, I would say really though, my, my thing with Anna was I co-wrote, you know, vocally on songs, um, and produced a couple of her songs that are the more reggae feeling songs. Ah, I love it. I love it. It has been a pleasure having you on the show and to finally kind of meet you. We'll meet you when we go through the Bay Area next time for sure. Have a seat at our free, you know, I'll have tickets for you at the no ticket venues Ah. that we do stuff at. (laughs) Um, but i would Maybe love what, more to take you guys you know we'll go to a couple different parks and and hang out together uh in the, oh, the parks listen we love park picnics you know we will That's do a it. picnic at the band shelf or something special when you guys are here oh my god we have to have fun you know that that's it you know the the parks and music you can't get you can't it it just doesn't get better than that everyone go to independentdistro.com of course, the National Parks Arts Foundation dot org is the website. We want to thank them uh, for today's show. And of course, keep up with us at BigBlendRadio.com. Every first Friday is our parks and arts show. And I think this is one of those wonderful examples of what can happen in parks to keep the parks alive, to keep the arts alive. See, that's a good partnership for sure. Thanks sure. so much, Stefan. Thank you, listeners. Thank you.